Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast of the Fires of Revival podcast. I am your host, Colton Prater, and I pray today's episode will be a help and an encouragement to you. Please don't forget to rate, review, and share the podcast with others. And now for the episode. Thank you all for joining today's episode. I'm very excited about it. This is our 99th episode, so next episode will be episode 100. But for this episode, we'll be doing something very different, a little unique. I've never done an episode quite like this before. (coughs) And just as a side note, if you hear me coughing, my allergies are killing me, so I have a cough going on. But for this episode, it's actually a class project that I am doing for uh, Baptist History and Distinctives for... Mr. James Kiernan, so you should be listening to this, Mr. Kiernan, hopefully, and I'm excited about it, and I hope this does well, and I get a good grade on it, and that's my plug-in for you. But today I'll be talking about a topic in Baptist history. Instead of writing a paper, I'm doing a podcast episode on it, so I'm able to get a grade for the class and also help the podcast, I believe the topic that I'll be talking about is very needed and very helpful in today's Christian circles, especially today as Christians. I believe it's prevalent now more than ever. And this topic I'll be dealing with in Baptist history, yet also dealing with (coughs) what it means to us in today's current world. And that is, how did Charles Spurgeon deal with depression? Now, you know, we talk about depression, and it's almost taboo today in many churches. They don't want to talk about it. They're almost scared of it. You know, what is depression? You know, they don't want to talk about it. They're scared of it. But millions of people, if not even billions, struggle with depression, discouragement, (coughs) despondency, uh, melancholy, they, they suffer with those kinds of things, those issues. And Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, when we think of him, we think of uh, the person who is the most read after, the most quoted, the most studied preacher today outside of anyone in the Bible. We think of him as the most studied after preacher, the most praised, the most loved, the most sought after to be like preacher. Uh, the prince of all preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in England, in London, England in the 1800s, and he was a great preacher, and he saw his ministry extend all across the world in a sense, and he saw thousands of people come to Christ, and many lives have been changed then and have still been changed through his writing and sermons of today. But most people, when they think of him, they don't think of a man who was very depressed. They don't think of a man who went through great valleys, through deep valleys of depression, of discouragement. And as we'll see here, there were several instances where he actually almost quit because of his despair depression because of his discouragement and we're going to look at some things what led to his depression uh some things like that what caused him to be depressed uh that key some keys that helped him with his depression uh what depression depression isn't according to spurgeon how spurgeon coped with suffering which is the most important part here of this this uh talk here and then how why he went through trials we'll see why did spurgeon go through the trials that he went through why he went through what he did (coughs) we'll start back here in the beginning at the top which is what led to his depression. And when I think of Charles Spurgeon, I said most people, as I said, they just think of the great things he accomplished. Most people don't realize the great depression and the deep valleys he went through and and suffered (coughs) as a result of that. But there really are four key things that led to his depression, that led to him being depressed, discouraged, downhearted, and just going through a great valley of not knowing what to do and being, you know, swimming in a river but not knowing the way out and reaching for the bottom but not able to feel it, and just this overwhelming feeling of just inadequacy, if you will. But there are four things that led to it, and we'll see here throughout, and hopefully you'll be listening for these that are listeners, is a lot of the things that I'll be sharing with you throughout this episode are parallels to us. I'm not just sharing this so we can have information about his life. 
I'm sharing this because there's some things that we can learn through his life, through he, through how he wrestled with this depression and discouragement that can help us today. So the number one factor that led to him <coughs> out of the four here, just walking through one through four, that led to his depression is overwork. He was a man that overworked. His good friend, uh, missionary David Livingston, I'm sure many of you know who that is. He was a missionary slash explorer to Africa. He said of Spurgeon they were good friends that would write together often, and whenever he was in London, he would make a point to spend a few days with Spurgeon and his wife. And David Livingston, in regards to Spurgeon, said of him, he said, he did the work of two men every day. He said Spurgeon overworked. Spurgeon worked way too hard. He said the, the work ethic that Spurgeon put in was the equivalent of two people. Because you think about it, Spurgeon at that time had a great ministry. He managed a church. He managed a college. Uh, two orphanages, uh, the printing ministry that printed a newspaper every week and articles and different things and <clears throat> the printing ministry that printed his books. And he had a great ministry that was very time consuming. It took a lot of his time and he overworked. And overwork can lead to depression for us as well and discouragement. Just go to that topic of just overworking all the time and not able to rest and replenish like the scripture tells us to do. So overwork. <clears throat> Number two is pain and sorrow. I believe the second thing that led to him being depressed was his pain and sorrow. Uh, just some things about Spurgeon there. His wife, Susanna, uh, birthed their twin sons the day after the great stampede, which I'll mention here in just a minute, the stampeding that went on that killed that several people lost their lives through. But the day after this great trial and valley happened, his wife gave birth to his two sons. And those are the only two children they were able to have, just the twin boys. And it said that many times when he would look at his boys... Not at a fault of their own, but because of the circumstances that Spurgeon experienced around that time, he would be reminded of the great grief and the sorrow of that event, and it would cause him to fall into more discouragement and more depression. So he almost had, you could say in a sense, a jaded view of the family because he would see his kids, and as I said, not at a fault of their own, it would just remind him of that trial. Shortly after giving birth to their two sons, he said that his wife became an invalid who he had to take care of himself. It was said that she could never hear him preach, that for many, over 20, 30 years, she was never able, never able to go hear him preach. She was bedridden. She would stay at home, and he had to take care of her, and there's a lot of sorrow and pain that is coming along with that, you know, of having to care for the work of the church and the college and the orphanages and the printing ministry and the lives of people, and then having to care for your wife and the family and the home as well, and that pain and sorrow that can lead to that. Another thing in the pain and sorrow point is that he suffered gout so badly that he thought the pain would be the death of him. <coughs> the death of him. It would said it was said in his personal writings to let, uh, in letters to friends that he would tell them that the pain of the of the gout that he suffered was so extreme, was so bad that he said he thought the pain was going to kill him. He thought the pain was going to be the end of him, and he just couldn't take it anymore. And he would many times it said he would ask God for deliverance for the pain, deliverance for the sorrow, because of all that he went through. Number three would also lead to his depression. <coughs> I believe points three and four are the two most important out of the four. The two, I guess you said, the most important that led to his depression and discouragement. Number three is hostile criticism. Now, it, it, when you study the life of Spurgeon, you'll find that he suffered criticism like no other. He was constant, constantly being belittled, constantly being downgraded, constantly being pushed around, if you will, in, what, in our terms it would be the media, but for them it would be the newspapers and magazines and articles. And He was constantly being criticized for what he would do. And because Spurgeon had such a big name, when you'd say Charles Spurgeon, everyone in the world knew who that was. Because he had such a big name, it said that he was constantly being attacked on all sides, by believers, by non-believers, by those who just wanted to make him look bad, by others. And that he was being 
<coughs> constantly attacked on all sides. It said that the people looked to make him uh, looked to make him look bad. People were just looking for things he would say in his sermons. They'd look for things they could take out of context and twist to make him look bad. And in regards to this, Spurgeon made a statement one time. He said, "Down on my knees have I often fallen." with the hot sweat rising from my brow under some fresh slander poured upon me. In agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. He said many times his heart had been broken. He had gone through great trials, and the way he describes it, he says, under some fresh slander poured upon me. (coughs) It caused him to be well nigh broken. And his wife said that he would suffer many sleepless nights because of the great criticism that he experienced. Uh, the great experience, when I think of his discouragement, I think of one thing in regards to the hostile criticism that really broke him, in a sense, was when he wrote on the downgrade controversy. In his magazine or his article that he would write, The Sword and the Trowel, he wrote an article anonymously. They found out later that it, it revealed that it was him. <coughs> but he wrote an article called The Downgrade Controversy, and he was warning the other Baptist churches in London and in, in England there he was warning them that they were watering down. He said, look, many, many churches today are watering down, and the only requirement to be joining of their church is just baptism. You don't have to be saved by you know grace through faith. There's no codes of conduct. There's no other code for that. And he said many churches that are just watering down their doctrine, and they're getting worse and worse, which almost reminds me of today and many of the churches that are doing the same thing almost 200 years later. And he wrote about that, and he said the, the backlash that he received of that was so strong and so great that he actually, the Prince of Preachers, the Charles Spurgeon that we know of today, the one that everyone loves and praises and wants to know more about, was actually voted out of the convention in England. That he actually was voted out, and it wasn't even you know a 50-50 vote or you know, very close. It literally were thousands of votes that voted him out against only six that voted to keep him in. And, and two of those six were his sons. And he suffered a great deal of depression and discouragement of it. And it was said that after they voted him out, the convention actually stood and applauded the fact that they had voted out the great prince of preachers. They said his heart was so broken by it that his wife said that that incident alone killed him. And if you know anything about Spurgeon, you know that he wrote that article in the twilight of his life. He had about three years left to live when he wrote that article, if you look at his timeline of when he wrote it and when he died. And his wife said that that was the key reason that he died so young. He died in his 50s. And she believed that the key reason was because of the hostile criticism he received in the downgrade controversy. And then number four, this is the most important, I believe, of all of them. This is what really started this discouragement in his life. <clears throat> and it's number four, the Royal Surrey Gardens incident. Now, the other three had been more generic, you know, broad topics like um, hostile criticism, pain and sorrow, overwork. But this one's very specific for a very reason, for a very interesting reason. That's because this instance here, as we'll see, was what really shaped him and changed his life from then on. It was like a changing of the tracks, a changing of life, a 180-degree turn in a completely different direction. And it all happened at the Royal Surrey Gardens. So at age 22, and he was still a newlywed, he'd only been married a little over a year, with a, a year or so with his wife, Susanna. And they were actually about to give birth. And uh, this incident happened on a Sunday, and she gave birth on a Monday, as I said earlier, <coughs> with the instance here, with his wife giving birth the day after this instance and it reminding whenever he saw his sons it would remind him of this time and this hard time in his life but as I said he was age 22 he'd been pastoring just for a few years and he was a new pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle or at that church that he was at and and the, the, at the point in that time that the, they'd outgrown the building they were getting it remodeled 
And at the time, he was preaching. They were renting out a building each week at the Royal Surrey Gardens. And it was this big venue in London. It could seat 10,000 people. And it was a huge venue. And as he was preaching on a Sunday morning, they said a prankster snuck in the church and he yelled fire. And when he yelled fire, everyone thought a fire was going on. And everyone began to pour out of the balconies and pour out and rush out. And it said that people were trampled, stairs collapsed. And a great catastrophe happened. And it said that seven people were wounded and seven were killed. Or seven were killed, excuse me. And many, many others were wounded in that instance. It was said that Spurgeon was so depressed, so distraught at that moment, that when that happened, that he actually had to be dragged out of the church because he had no strength. And he just lay motionless on the ground. And so that after that incident, his wife wrote in a letter to a friend that she thought her, her husband would never preach again. She said that he had preached his last sermon and that she had hoped and prayed he'd preach again, but she believed that that was the it of her husband, that was, that was the end of her husband, and that he would never preach a sermon again. People in the news media, on top of the grief that he suffered from that, people in the news media slandered him, saying that it was his fault those members died, and you know, belittling him, saying how does he feel for killing seven of his members. And It was said that that moment that he went through, that suffering, had lasting effects from that moment until his death. That he wrestled with that one instance his entire life. And that one instance shaped his life <coughs> for the worse and for the better, as we'll see. The depression that he would suffer for for the next 30 years would all go back to this. It would all hinge on this one moment, this one issue at the Royal Surrey Gardens. It was said even that because of this, he even suffered what today we know as PTSD. At the time, it wasn't diagnosed. They didn't know what that was. But analyzing it today, they believed he suffered from PTSD. And so that whenever he was preaching away for guests in a large auditorium, he would see flashbacks in his mind. It was said that as he was uh, as he was sitting on the platform, as the, the church was singing the congregational music and everyone was standing, that he would see the crowds, and in his mind it would go back to that fateful Sunday in the gardens, and it would remind him of the, the young prankster who would yell fire and the people would be trampled. And it was said that he was so overcome with anxiety that he couldn't get out of his seat and he didn't have the nerves to preach, and he would look at the song leader and ask him to lead in one more song so that he could gain the nerves to finally preach. And it was said many times that the song leader would sing one, two, three, even four more songs before Spurgeon would finally nod to him and painstakingly walk up to the pulpit and preach his sermon. So that, I believe, is the great instance that shaped Spurgeon's life and changed him forever and caused him to be as depressed as he was. And we'll see here how that out of this issue shaped his entire ministry for the good and that many, many lives, including mine, including yours, were changed in impact impacted as a result of how he suffered and how he experienced this depression. So two weeks after he experienced that, two weeks after he had gone through <coughs> that issue there at the Royal Surrey Gardens, he actually got up, he took two weeks off, and understandably so, going through that sort of an anguish and grief. And it said the first sermon he preached when he came back, was a pre he preached a sermon on a Sunday morning two weeks later, and it was titled The Exaltation of Christ. Think of that title, of anything he could have preached. After going through what he went through, he preached on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And in this sermon, he describes to the audience in regards to depression, he says, We are all different, each one of us, but I am sure there is one thing in which we are all brought to unite in times of deep sorrow, namely, in a sense of helplessness. So he describes depression as helplessness. He said every person <coughs> may suffer differently. Their discouragement may be different than someone else. Their issue may be different than someone else. But all of our issues bring about the same end result, and that is helplessness. He said, well, each of us suffer from helplessness. And he preached to them about how that despite our helplessness, 
we can run to the great helper, the great Jesus Christ, who can help us in our time of need. And you know, it makes you wonder, as open as he was, and in that sermon we'll see here in just a second, that in his prayer he reveals to the audience just how discouraged he was. And it makes you wonder, how could a megachurch pastor in Victorian England, which is the height of the world, uh, of pop culture at that time, in the 1800s, talk so openly about depression? And it makes you wonder that, you know, that would be the equivalent of today, a megachurch pastor, you know, in New York City or Los Angeles or some pop culture part of the world talking openly about key issues. And it says that he talked openly about it. Most of a lot of his sermons dealt with depression and discouragement and helped in helping those that wrestled with those issues. And it says that <clears throat> because after his great ex- uh, experience of depression, he realized how severe it was. And that many around, and then he realized that many around him were experiencing depression of all sorts as well. Yet he said no one was talking about it. He said he felt like he needed to be a voice for the voiceless. He thought, and you see throughout his sermons, and if you look at the sermons around him, no one was talking about these topics like depression and discouragement and despondency. He was one of the few that was talking about it, the Lone Ranger, if you will, talking about these issues. And he felt like he had to be a voice to the voiceless. And in that sermon, he opened his prayer by saying, O Spirit of God, magnify thy strength and thy servant's weakness, and enable him to honor his Lord, even when his soul is cast down within him. <clears throat> I love that in his prayer. He says, Enable him to honor his Lord, even when his soul is cast down within him. It's beautiful words that he uses there, and I believe that should be our heart cry as well when we go through hard times and when we go through struggles. So we're going to see here, the key to helping him with his depression. <clears throat> and there's a great key that helps him and can help us. We're going to look at some other little remedies that he used. But there's one key. If you walk away wondering, uh, you if you walk away with one thing, this is the one thing I want you to walk away with. And this is the key to helping him and the key to helping us with our depressions. <clears throat> and in Philippians 2, 8, and 9, that is the first great key that we find. Because the key that we find that, helping him, that helps him and that helps us is Scripture. And Scripture is the gate, the great key that can unlock the heart of the sufferer, the, the heart of the one going through the anguish. And it was said that after that instance, that Philippians 2, 8, and 9 became so dear to him that this is the verse that he often clung to. And in Philippians 2, 8, and 9 it says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And if you want to think about that scripture, you know that that's referring to our Lord Jesus Christ and talk about how that he became a man and lived a sinless life and died on the cross. And he said this verse helped him. He said that if Jesus could be humiliated, if Jesus could be humbled as low as he was and hung on the cross and went through what he went through, and God could exalt him after that for his glory and honor, he said then God could help pick him up when he had been at his lowest. And Spurgeon said, you know what, if, if God could help, if God could lift Christ up out of that and Christ could be the Savior of the world and save souls through his humiliation, if you will, on the cross, then he said God could use his measly sufferings in comparison to Christ to help him at his lowest to make a difference for God and to do something great for him. And it was said that his wife said that he found great help from this verse and great encouragement from this verse and he clung to it often. And although we'll see later, as I said, that Spurgeon used other things to help his depression, Scripture was his main help, and it should be our main help as well. So just some other brief points here, uh, four points on what, according to Spurgeon, depression is not. And we're going to see what four things depression isn't. And there's some things here that I believe are helpful that Spurgeon said. And, and number one is depression is not a sin. 
depression is not a sin. He said, uh, or sorry, he said, but it says that here that in my outline that sins can result from depression by intensifying temptations, but depression in and of itself is not sin. Spurgeon said, we may get depressed in spirit, we may be nervous, fearful, timid, we may almost come to the borders of despair, and then he says some other words, and he says, apart from sin. And he said that in his sermon, Our Youth Renewed. But he said, you know, we may get depressed, we may go through discouragement, but he said that alone is not sin. He said the depression is not the sin. He said he did say that later on that, you know, depression can lead to greater temptations, those temptations can lead to sin. But depression in and of itself is not a sin. So if you're suffering through depression today, your discouragement, realize it's not a sin. It's not wrong that you're going through that. And he deals with that often. Many times Spurgeon in his sermons would tell the, tell the audience, he would say, those of you who say that, you know, us that are suffering through discouragement aren't spiritual enough, that we need to read our Bible more and pray more to cure our depression and to cure our, to cure our discouragement, he said, you're absolutely wrong. That you're farther from the truth and you've truly never experienced discouragement because he said if you had, and if you have, you would recognize that isn't the case. He said, it's not just something you can wipe away and it's gone. It's something that we all suffer with. But he said, depression is not a sin. Number two, he said, depression is not unique to us. Depression is not unique to us. He said, we are not the, you know, we are not the first to struggle with this. In his sermon, The Cause and Cure of a Wounded Spirit, Spurgeon says, You were not the first child of God who has been depressed or troubled. Even among the noblest of men and women who ever lived, there has been much of this kind of thing. He said, everyone from all times of all earth, you know, of all stages of life, basically paraphrasing here that every single person has gone through depression. You're not the only one who has gone through that. In his sermons and in his writings, he often would reference the downcast spirits of Martin Luther, of Isaac Newton, William Cowper, uh, Job in the Bible, King David, Elijah, and even Jesus Christ. He would reference these people often because they all just struggled with downcast spirits and struggled with discouragement and what to do. And he would reference them in his sermons as a help to the people. He also said <coughs> that grace relieves but does not always cure depression. So in other words, uh, those who suffer depression, he said that grace relieves it but doesn't always cure it. And he said many today look to Jesus and think, you know what, you know, just because I'm a following Christ, just because I'm a Christian means that my problems will fade away. You know, I can sing Kumbaya by the fire, if you will, and I won't have any issues. But Spurgeon believed, and I believe we can believe as well according to Scripture, that it's the exact opposite. That not only, you know, our troubles don't go away like we want them to, but instead we have Christ to help us with the troubles. We have Jesus to help us alongside in our journey as we're going through that discouragement in that valley. And Spurgeon loved to reference this in his sermon. He uses this as an example, and I believe it's helpful to us. He said many times in his sermons he would say that, you know, one who suffers with asthma, who loves Jesus, will still suffer with asthma until their death. And then he would illustrate further on and explain to people that the same goes for those who struggle with discouragement as well. He said, just because, you know, you have asthma and you love Jesus doesn't mean your asthma or your illness or whatever illness you plug in there isn't going to go. It doesn't mean it's going to go away. He said that believer must learn to live with their asthma and love Christ at the same time. And you'll find that Christ will help them and give them the grace to get through that struggle. And he, and he believed, and I believe as well, that the same goes for those who struggle with depression. You know, that depression isn't going to go away just because you love Jesus and just because you want to live your life for God. It's on the contrary, but you know, now that we've decided to live our life for God and now that we've decided to serve Him, God can help us and give us the grace to make it through that trial and to give us the grace to keep on keeping on. 
Our hope does not reside in our ability to preserve a good mood, but in God's ability to bear us up. Just because we suffer with depression doesn't mean God's going to take it away. It doesn't mean God's just going to magically you know, be the cure-all and say, oh, it's gone. No, many times when we suffer through that, God's now, as a Christian, He is going to help us and give us the grace to get through. He's going to give us that grace for that day. And then the next thing here, God does not laugh at our depression. Spurgeon felt the anguish many felt when they were shamed, made fun of, or were told they weren't spiritual enough because they suffered depression. And he said to those sufferers in his sermon, he preached a sermon entitled, Remembering God's Works from Psalm 77. And he says, I can assure you that God will not laugh at you. He knows all about that sad complaint of yours. So I urge you to go to him. And that should be the heart cry of us as well, that when we go through trials, we don't have to worry wondering, is God going to make fun of us? Is God going to judge us for going through what we're going through or thinking the way we're thinking? No, he won't. We'll find that God wants us to go to him. That's one of the reasons we go through the trials that we do is because it drives us on our knees. It drives us to God. It drives us to do the things that God wants us to do. And it all goes back to the trial. Because as Spurgeon said, I can assure you that God will not laugh at you. He knows all about that sad complaint of yours. So I urge you to go to him. And a verse that Spurgeon would cling to in regard to this is Hebrews 4.15. A verse we all know, he says, in referring to Christ. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it was said that when Spurgeon would cling to that verse, he would, pre- he would preach on that verse many times, and he would talk specifically to those that were depressed. And he would mention the point where it mentions that he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities and was all point tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And he would say that, you know, the, the, the depression you're experiencing, the pain that you're going through in your mind, the anguish that you're experiencing, he said Christ has experienced. Christ knows what you're going through, and you can cling to him as the refuge. And you could go to him because he knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're experiencing. Now we're going to see here next how Spurgeon coped with suffering. Moving on here, this is the most important part of it, I believe. (coughs) Or next, building off of talking about how he clinged to the scriptures as a key. But Spurgeon coped with suffering in several different things. And one is he would cling to the promises of God. As I referenced a minute ago, Psalm 77. uh, Spurgeon, a verse he would go to a lot was Psalm 77. Verse 8, and if you have a Bible, I'd, I'd, I'd like, I would like for you to turn there, and I believe it will be a help to you. But in Psalm 77, verse 8, uh, in regard to promises, it, he would, the verse says this. It says, referring to God, Is his mercy clean gone forever? And this is the phrase right here. Doth his promise fail forevermore? And he would quote that for, to God and say, God, are your promises going to fail today? And then he would remind himself they're not, because everything God says is true. And Spurgeon would cling to the promises of God, and that's what we're to do as well. Now, here's a side note that Spurgeon would say, and I believe we should apply in regard to promises. And that is that promises do not necessarily get rid of the problem, but they give one something to cling to during the problem. Spurgeon often in his sermons would, would refer to promises. And they said that he would say things along the lines of, you know, a promise isn't a genie in the model that you can rub and ask the wish and it goes away. He said, but many times they're like a love letter. Something that you can go to to remind yourself of God's affections in your life and how much God cares for and loves you and is looking out for you. And that when you go through the hard times and the trials that you're going through, you can remind yourself that there's a reason for this. And that Christ has experienced the same suffering that I am going through right now. But some promises that Spurgeon would cling to, a key one that he would cling to is Psalm 91.4. And if, if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn there as well. Psalm 91.4. 
And it says, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. And that first phrase that I'm going to emphasize is the one that he would emphasize many times. It says, He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. And he would remind the listeners, remind the congregation just to trust in God, to lean on him despite your circumstances, and just to keep resting in his promises. I'll just give you the references for these for sake of time, but another verse he would cling to is Psalm 145, verse 14, Psalm 138, 7, uh, the 23rd Psalm, the 22nd Psalm, the 24th Psalm, Psalm 1, Psalm 11. There were many Psalms he would cling to every day for the promises in them. And another verse, for instance, whenever he was going through the downgrade controversy around that time, and he was going through a lot, and his wife would remind him, she actually wrote this verse, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, and actually put it on a sign and put it in their bedroom so every time Spurgeon would walk through the door, he would see the sign, and she would make him read it to remind himself of the promise of God. And in Matthew chapter 5, this promise says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. And those are just a few, those are just four out of the many other. Those are just a couple instances that Spurgeon, or verses rather, that Spurgeon would cling to to help him in that issue of, of discouragement that you all can cling to as well. And Spurgeon encouraged those wrestling with issues actually to write down a promise of God for every day in their calendar. He would tell his listeners to get a calendar out and for every day of the year, Write a promise down. Write a verse that promises God, promises something to us. And he said, do that for the week. And every day when you get up, go to the calendar and read the promise of God for that day. And he said, if you did that, that would help you out in your life and rejuvenate the Christian life and keep you you know, invigorated and from getting discouraged. Another thing he would do is he would encourage everyone to carry a copy of Clark's book, Precious Promises, with them. And it was said that he actually carried that book in his pocket everywhere he went so that when he became overcome with anguish, he could pull that book out and begin to read verses of, of Scripture, of promises from God to him. And he would do that. And another thing he would do in regard to promises, he said that he told his audience to find characters whom God delivered in the Bible who suffered similar issues as them and clung and cling to those references. And for instance, he would mention in his sermons, he would tell the people to look to the lives of Jacob, look to Joseph, to Job, to David, and many others. And find in those characters stories that res resonate yours. And heart cries in those stories that resonate yours and cling to those. It was said that he would cling to Jacob's limp, to Joseph's tears, to Job's agonies, to David's psalms, Elijah's desire to die, Paul's thorn, and our Lord's misery in Gethsemane, just to name a few there. And that, Spur and that Spurgeon would go read those references over and over again and find a parallel in his life to theirs. And say, you know what, if God can help this person in the Bible with their issue... And my issue is similar to there, then, that, then I can rest in the fact that God is going to get me through this. And God is going to help me. And God is going to deliver me from that valley. And when our valleys seem dark, we can cling to the promises of God for hope. So number one was the promises that he would cling to. Number two, and how Spur uh, Spurgeon dealt with depression and then little remedies that helped him. Number two is laughter. In uh, Proverbs 17, 22, a wonderful verse here. Uh, Proverbs chapter 17 Verse 22, it says, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dryeth the bones. Despite his circumstances, he tried his best to live by this verse, and I believe we should try our best to live by this verse as well. And it was said of Spurgeon that actually, that he was a very cheerful man, that he actually would crack jokes all the time, and he would 
said that laughter, this isn't his quote, it was someone else said it, but he would many times reverberate that quote by saying that laughter is the best medicine. And he said, many of the things you can do to cure a melancholy spirit, a depressed spirit, is just laughter, is looking at the funny things of life and just cracking jokes and, and trying to remain humorous and positive. In a sermon he preached titled Bells for Horses, he said, Cheerfulness readily carries the burdens which despondency dares not touch. I'll read that one more time because it's very powerful. Cheerfulness readily carries the burdens which despondency dares not touch. And as I said, you know, those around him said he was very humorous and always cracking jokes and trying to be lighthearted. And it was said that he actually was sometimes was so lighthearted in the pulpit with his jokes that he actually was criticized for not taking the pulpit seriously and not preaching the word of God as he should, even though I believe he did. But it was said that he actually used laughter and humor that much to relate to the people that he received criticism for it. And I believe laughter today can be a key thing to help with our discouragement as well as just looking at things to laugh and to find the joy in life. So number one is the promises. Number two is laughter. Moving quickly here. Number three, he would have retreats. In 1879, after a great trial and some great times of valleys in Spurgeon's life, his church actually, his deacons made him go on a three-month retreat to Mentone, France to de-stress, if you will, and get away from things. He protested, didn't want to do it, but finally he did, and he realized after doing it how, when he came back, how refreshed he was. And he actually incorporated that into his schedule every year from 1879 until his death in the 1890s. So he incorporated it for over 10 years in his life. And it says that he actually loved it so much that it just became a part of his life. And he looked forward to this three-month period of rest and refreshment in Mentone, France, every year. And his wife also said she believed that if he hadn't done that, he would have died of stress long before that. But that was one of the key things God sent in his life to help him to get through that trial. It was said he also would begin to cut back his workload so he wouldn't be stressed. As I said, David Livingston said about him in the beginning that he did the work of two men and he began to, in his older years in life, recognize that he was overworking and that he was going to work himself to death. So he began to cut back his workload and have his assistants help him more and hire on more staff to cover the needs that he was going through. And, and it was all because... He needed some retreats in his life, some times of rest. And, and the Bible talks about that when the Lord, you know, he didn't need the rest. God didn't need the rest. In, in Genesis, he did it to set a pattern for us. But it says that when he created the earth, on, after the sixth day, on the seventh day, he rested. And there's a principle that God wants us to rest in our lives. And that's something Spurgeon recognized. Almost too late, but he recognized it at the end of his life. And I believe the Lord extended his life a few extra years as a result of the rest. And these times of rest helped refresh his spirit and renew his strength. And actually, many of his books he wrote came out of his out of his seasons of rest, out of these periods that he would rest. Many of his books that we read today came out of that. Many of the books he wrote, many of his sermons actually were studied and prepared during that three-month time of rest and refreshment. And number four here of things that helped Spurgeon with depression that could help us was medicine. It was said that he took medicine for his depression and illnesses. We don't know what kind of medicines, but he took medicine, it said. It was said he took warm baths to de-stress. Uh, he watched what he ate. He would try to have uninterrupted sleep, and he would schedule certain days where he would just sleep to let his body rest and refresh and catch back up. But it was said that he used medicine. Now, an important thing to note that he said many times in his books and his sermons, talking about he would talk about medicine and that he took and things is that, as I said, he used medicine to help, but he said that medicine was not the cure to depression, but help. He said those that are curing, are leaning solely on medicine to help their discouragement have missed the point. He said, but it can be used as a cast to help until your mind heals and your body gets back where it's supposed to be. And that's a key thing that Spurgeon used. 
And then lastly, I'm going to ask a question, and that is why he went through trials. So why did Spurgeon go through the trials he went through? Hopefully now, as we're getting towards the end of this year, realizing just how discouraged he was and just what kind of trials he experienced and went through in his life. And we're going to see why he went through them and what can be learned from them. In studying his life, I believe the key, if you were to sum it up in a few words, why he went through trials, it's simply this, to help others. There's the old adage we all know, misery loves company. And many people said that would flock to hear Spurgeon, that thousands would crowd out, and they'd have to turn thousands away because they couldn't fit him in the building. And they said that one of the reasons people flocked to hear Spurgeon so much, even those who didn't go to church would want to hear Spurgeon if he was in the area preaching. And it was said because he would talk so openly about key issues of life. As I said earlier, no one at the time except for him was talking about depression and discouragement and suicide and different issues like that that we all face in the mind. And he would talk so openly about it, and everyone at the time was realizing, you know, what he's talking about I struggle with as well, but I don't have anyone to talk to, so I'm going to go to this sermon and hear how I can get help with what I'm going through. And he would talk openly about these issues, and people would come to flock. They would come to hear him, they'd flock around to hear him because they wanted to find the answers to the issues they're suffering, because no one was talking about it at the time. No one was talking about how to get over depression, or how to get over suicide, and how to wrestle with those desires in our lives. And the sufferings he experienced helped him better pastor his people. A Spurgeon he made a, a sorry a statement Spurgeon made in his book one time in a book he wrote. He said, "A clergyman may be learned as a theologian, but powerless as a pastor. A clergyman may be learned as a theologian, but powerless as a pastor." And that's something Spurgeon realized, and I believe is very true. He said, you know, there's many people out there today who know the Bible and they could preach the Bible and they could exposit it, you know, and you can alliterate the outlines and this and that. He said, but there are many, sadly, today that are powerless as pastors. They don't know what it means to pastor because pastoring a flock is to help people go through the troubles they're going through and help them through those trials, through those struggles. And as Spurgeon went through those trials, he was able to help others. You know, people today just just need support and a listening ear. And he recognized that, and everywhere he would go, people would come and tell him their stories after the sermons, and he would sit and listen and just hear their stories and soak it in. And just the fact of him listening made a difference in those people's lives. And he recognized, if Spurgeon hadn't gone through the troubles he went through, the trials he went through, the struggles he went through, he would not be the Spurgeon we know him as today. I believe his impact would not be what it is now had he not gone through the trials that he did. And he believed that those who made the greatest difference for God suffered the most. And I believe it's 2 Corinthians, or it's the 2nd or 1st Corinthians. It's not on my notes, but it mentions, Paul says, he says, being reviled, we blessed. Or being reviled, we bless. And there's a principle in that. You know, when we suffer for God, God can help us bless other people. And he believed that. Charles Spurgeon recognized that his suffering is going to make a difference for God and impact thousands of lives if he could just yield to God and let God make the most out of the trial. And as I said, and I believe it's true today, that those who suffer the most make the biggest difference. We think of Paul, for instance, made a great difference over half the New Testament, had a thorn in the flesh that debilitated him greatly. Others in the Bible had great debilitating issues, yet God used them despite the thorn, despite the issue, to make a difference. And he believed his suffering would help many lives. And some verses he would go to many times in regards to that. He would go to Romans eight twenty eight, the verse we all know that it says that, and we know that all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. 
And he clung to that phrase, and we know that all things work together for good. And he believed that things might not make sense now. Things might not be, you know, crystal clear now, but they're going to work out in the end. And he rested in that simple fact. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, a verse that Pastor Sexton said the other day in a sermon, he said is the hardest verse in all the Bible to believe. And it says this, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. And how true that is. For all things are for your sakes. You know, everything in life today that happens is for our sakes. Everything is going to work out. Everything is supposed to happen for a reason. Things don't just happen by an accident. Charles Spurgeon didn't go through the instance with the prankster yelling fire just because God thought it would be funny or humorous for him to experience that. No, there was a reason. He was able to impact thousands, if not millions, of lives because of that one instance. That one instance changed his entire life, and it was all for his sakes. And the trials and struggles we go through today are for our sakes as well. And one final verse I want to leave you with. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, and it's a verse that Spurgeon would preach on a lot. And it's Proverbs 23, or not Proverbs, sorry, Job 23, verse 10. Job 23, verse 10. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn there and open it up and mark it up and look at it. And I'll give you a second to turn there, but Job 23, verse 10. And it says, But he knoweth the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And Charles recognized, he recognized that, you know, I might not know what's going on, but God knows the way that I'm taking. And when God's tried me, when these hard times are over, when my life is finished, I'm going to come forth as gold, as dross purified in the fire, as gold purified of the impurities in the fire and the heat and the the flames of difficulty. My life is going to come forth as gold. And God used his depression to impact millions. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what depression, if you're suffering depression or discouragement or a physical ailment. Whatever it is, God can use it. God can use it today. He can use mine. He can use yours. And God just wants us to yield it over to Him, just to yield that over. Just like Paul yielded his thorn to God, and Spurgeon yielded his depression to God, God wants us to yield our greatest struggles to Him. To yield those valleys, those discouragements, those things that we're going through, we don't know why we're going through. God just is waiting for us to yield those to Him so that He can make the difference in our life. So how Spurgeon dealt with depression, he yielded it to God. How Spurgeon dealt with depression, he went to the scriptures, let God answer it for him, because he recognized that all things were for, all things were for his sakes. He recognized that when he was purified, when he went through the trials, the purifying, that he was going to come forth as gold. And he recognized that everything was going to work out for God's good and God's glory, whether on this earth or after he passed away. He knew it was all going to work out in the end. And those are some verses and things that we can rest on today as Christians and some lessons that we can learn from the life and ministry of Charles Spurgeon. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity for me to record this episode. I know it's a little different than what I normally do. But Father, I believe it's what you'd have me to talk about today and ask that you just help it to make a difference in at least one person's life today. And that one person after listening to this will walk away with their life changed, walk away maybe understanding why they're going through what they're going through, and will be able to find hope and help in the hard times, Father. And in your Son's name, amen.